There's nothing like being in a car with a bunch of queers cuddling on the way to Philadelphia. Or a 36-hour train ride from central to southern India. Or a 13-hour flight that takes you exactly halfway around the world. I think it would be fair to say that I spend a majority of my life in transit. And honestly, I'm not sure I mind. There's something really beautiful about living your life on the road. A certain simplicity. And streamlinedness that you really can't get living a sedimentary lifestyle. Being a nomad is comfortable for me. Can you imagine having everything you own on your back? There's something I find really safe in that. As of late, however, my situation, my transit, has been a much more uh, metaphysical one. As of late, I've been going through reverse culture shock. What is reverse culture shock? Well, it's like culture shock, but without all the fun bits. No new language to learn, no new foods to try, no new places to go. It's coming home to everything old and not understanding any of it. And that's been a huge transit point for me. And so I guess I keep trying to keep my whole life as if I could keep it in a backpack, perhaps a uh, metaphysical one. That story was from Ray Gergen. I'm Harris Laparoff. You're listening to the Second Page Storytelling Show on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. Our theme this week, In Transit. There's something about being in transit. It's a liminal space outside of time. When you're on a train, a bus, an airplane, the normal rules and obligations of your life waver and fade. For some, this is unsettling. For others, it's a comfort. And at the end of the process, when you leave this space, you're somewhere new. Your surroundings have changed. And sometimes you too have changed. That's what we're going to explore today on the second page. Our next story this hour is from Hillary Carter. Leatherback sea turtles swim thousands of miles to travel from cold waters they feed in 
to return to the subtropical beaches they nest in. I had traveled a few thousand miles myself, by plane and bus, in an earnest effort to help them. I was 18, about to graduate high school, and on spring break. Somehow I had convinced my parents to let me travel out of the country by myself for the first time ever to volunteer with the Sea Turtle Conservation Organization in Costa Rica. I was hardworking, caring, and I even spoke a little Spanish, so to me this seemed like enough to be able to save the world. A bus dropped me off, and after chasing it to get my suitcase back, I found myself at Cuita National Park. It turned out that week I was the only volunteer, and the only American. The researcher in charge at this site was Australian, the two research assistants were British, and everybody else who worked at and visited the park during that time was Costa Rican. I had happened to arrive during Semana Santa, which is Easter week, and apparently the tradition there is to camp out on the beach and get drunk, which sounds pretty sweet to me now. My main responsibility was to help the researchers patrol the beach at night, and if they found a turtle laying eggs, to help them collect the eggs and relocate them. There are two reasons to do this. One is that the turtles don't always dig their nest far enough up the beach, so erosion can be a problem. And the other is that they leave very obvious markings. They're like flipper prints, really, showing where the nest is, and poachers will dig up the nest and take all the eggs. Glenn said that about 90% of the nests were poached before they started patrolling. I don't know if he was just being protective because I was a young woman, or if somehow he could tell that I had a tendency to do stupid, dangerous things, but Glenn gave me a lot of warnings in the first couple of days that I volunteered there, such as, there are pit vipers around here. They're poisonous. We have no anti-venom. You'd be dead in seven to ten minutes. Or, it's not really safe to walk on the beach alone, even during the day, because some local might approach you and start asking you questions and how are you and so on, and suddenly they pull out a machete. And then he'd say, I'm not trying to scare you. Okay, then. It took a few nights before I saw my first turtle. Mostly leatherback turtles nested on the beach, and they are just, they're, they're dinosaurs. They're the fourth largest reptile, and the three larger ones are all alligator and crocodiles. They're just, they're just enormous. They get up to six or seven feet long. Just, I can't even convey how, the way I've, I've felt looking at these animals. It was just like the dinosaurs are back. Sally, one of the researchers, and I waited as the turtle dragged itself slowly up the beach and then started digging a body pit. And then eventually she started digging a hole for the nest. My job was to hold a bag under her tail where the eggs would come out and once she started laying to catch the eggs in the bag. You may wonder, wouldn't a turtle get a little upset if someone was doing this? And they seem to go into a kind of trance uh, when they start laying their eggs, so they didn't really seem to notice us or be bothered by us. We made sure to have red filters over our flashlights so we would not be bothering them that way either. So 
The turtle started laying eggs into the bag I was holding out, and you know, there are eggs coming out of the tail of this giant dinosaur. No big deal. And we have to time it very carefully to make sure we pull the bag out before the turtle started covering up the nest with sand, because, uh, you know, they have giant flippers and yeah, so we managed to pull it up just in time. I think I got maybe bruised by a flipper, but other than that, got it out in time. And we brought the eggs a bit further up the beach and buried them and just covered up the hole really well so no one would be able to tell it was there. And that was that. It was pretty much the coolest thing I had ever done up to that point. There weren't a whole lot of turtles around this time of year, but I did get to do it a few more times. It felt good to know that these turtles had made these thousand-mile voyages, and maybe I could help all that not be in vain, that their nests wouldn't get taken by poachers. For the most part, I did not run into poachers. There were, at the very end of our patrol area, some mysterious fishermen who would appear in the nighttime that Glenn suspected were probably opportunistic poachers. We found out later that on the same night that I got to see my first turtle, a researcher and volunteer who patrolled the other half of the beach came across a drunk person, probably a poacher, because when he saw them coming, he dropped down onto the sand and laid very still, as if he was pretending to be a log. So when that didn't work and, you know, they kept walking, the guy jumps up and pulls out a machete. And obviously these two guys are kind of unnerved. They are carrying pepper spray with them, and the one guy is like has his hand on the pepper spray. And then the drunk guy reassures them, don't worry, machetes aren't for killing people. Which is technically true, they're for clearing brush in the jungle, but still not very reassuring. Fortunately, after that, he just staggered away. The second week I volunteered there, I got one night off. And I decided that I wanted to go to the nearby town and see if I could schedule a snorkeling tour for the next morning. The fastest way to the town of Kawita from the park is just walking along the beach. Set out along the beach. I get most of the way there when I come across two police officers standing on the beach, and I'm not really surprised because I'm used to seeing them uh, with Semana Santa and all the drunken antics. There are quite a few of them around. But when I walk up to them, uh, they, you know, wave their hands and say, no puede pasar, which is, you can't walk here, basically. So I had to turn around and walk back. I was kind of annoyed, but walked out to the road and just took the bus to Coita. Turned out I couldn't go snorkeling because when I asked the people there, they said it was going to rain tonight and then the water would be all cloudy the next day so they weren't going to take people out on the snorkeling tour. So I just had dinner. It was nice to eat something besides arroz and frijoles, rice and beans, which is what they served for every meal where I was volunteering, even breakfast. Walked around the town, got some ice cream, walked back to the bus stop, and... Apparently, the bus stopped running at 7. Whatever, I'll just walk back. It's dark by now, and I guess I was just too cheap to get a taxi or get a hotel room or 
whatever. I was just very independent, determined I could just walk back to the park. It would be fine, right? So when I'd walk along this road during the day, I'd get, you know, honked at and catcalled and so forth. But at night, they couldn't really see who I was until, you know, they got close enough. So it was actually a little less nerve-wracking walking along the street at night at first. One time an SUV drove by me and then stopped, and the driver just kind of stuck his hand out the window and gestured at me, and I just I stopped walking, and I just said, no, no, just repeatedly, loudly, until he drove away. And it was a little bit after that that it started raining. And because this is the rainforest, when it rains, it rains really hard here. And I'm on the road, so there's no trees or anything sheltering me from the rain. And everyone drives terribly here, and the rain, of course, would just make that worse. And I had two cameras with me that were in non-waterproof bags. And rain and wet clothing have a tendency to accentuate certain features that make a female person more obviously female. So I'm starting to freak out a little bit. So this white pickup truck pulls up right next to me and rolls down the window. And I just start saying, no, no. And he, but he's right next to me. And I look at the side of the truck and it has Manai on it, which is the initials of the park service. And I look up at the driver and it's one of the park rangers who lives at the park. You know, I see him at every meal and so forth. So I hop into the car and thank him like a million times. And uh, we both have to remind each other of our names. His is Jose. And he, you know, drove me the rest of the way back to the park. And he starts talking about something, some sort of crazy situation in the park. And I assumed it was some sort of drama involving Samana Santa and people drinking, because that's kind of just been the usual for this week. And... I know a little Spanish, but he's talking so fast that I can't quite catch every word, but clearly something is going on. So I just thank him a million more times. When I get back to the park, uh, the research assistants and the researcher are all giving me a hard time about doing dangerous things and walking by myself and why didn't I just call a taxi or stay at a hotel and need to be careful, etc. And I'm embarrassed. I mean, I don't want anybody to be worrying about me. So to try to distract them, I ask them, what's going on at the park? Jose mentioned some kind of situation. They tell me that a Brazilian tourist who was with a snorkeling tour was out on the ocean today on the reef and found a package floating in the water. It was a bale of cocaine. About 24 kilograms of cocaine, which is about 53 pounds for the metrically challenged. Glenn explained that they had probably come from planes or boats coming from Colombia, and the intended destination was probably Nicaragua. Either whoever had it was pursued by the Coast Guard and they just dropped it, or a plane dropped it expecting another plane to come and pick it up. But either way, not something you expect to find while you're snorkeling. So that was why I was stopped by police on the beach, and why Jose just happened to be driving back from Coita at night. So while this package in transit did not reach its intended destination, it did help me get back to the park safe and sound. 
Hillary Carter is Oberlin College class of 2009 and a former writer for the Dead Here Footsteps and the Semi-Automatic Players. She now resides in Columbia, Missouri. Our next story from Anita Peebles. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I was 16 years old, or pretty close to being 16, and I... Um, I had been going to this camp in Michigan called Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp for flute for several summers, and I finally got picked to go on an international trip. We were scheduled to go to France, Germany, Belgium, Denmark, and Hungary, and I was and I was really really psyched, and um, and I was just like really raring to go. You know, I was really excited to go across the whole world, and I was just like, oh, like this is going to be just the most epic trip. But I didn't know that I was going to meet my best friend on that trip. And I did. So I walk into the first, um, to the first rehearsal that we had at the camp, which was like in late November and, you know, it was pretty dreary. And we were, we were practicing in this like dungeon of a room. It was just like all cinder blocks in the basement of this building. And, um, because I'd hung around the camp so much, I knew, I knew my way around pretty well. And so I was just kind of standing there with my dad because my dad was dropping me off. And this girl comes over and she's like, hey, do you know where this room is? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I pointed her that way. And then I went to the room and it turned out that she was that she was a fellow flute player. And it also turned out that she lived in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is where my family goes camping every summer. And so we just like started talking about that. And I was just like, oh, like I have a good feeling about this girl. Like we're going to be we're going to be friends. But I guess that brings me to the in transit part. I really love traveling and I really love seeing all these places all over the world, but I get really, really nervous. And I was like having panic attacks, like during our orientation week, right before we would take off and fly to Europe. And I was, and I was really scared and I was really nervous and, and, you know, I was crying a lot. And I just, I thought that I was going to like miss some big event at home or something but then there was Sarah and she she took a lot of care of me and she was like she's like don't worry like we're gonna have a great time and so between flying nine hours from from Detroit to Paris and then from Paris to to Budapest and then driving you know at least 13 or 14 hours from Budapest to the very, very northernmost point of Denmark, Sarah was right there next to me the whole entire way, and she um, she shared my love of European bread. And so, like, we would we would have these stops, like, in the middle of the night, you know, in transit from place to place, and we would we would go to the little rest stops, which are so much nicer than the rest stops we have in the United States, and and we'd like buy a big loaf of bread and like a jar of Nutella and just and just you know eat it all night on the bus and and then we we told stories and we traded we traded books among all of the girls on the on the trip and we 
talked about life, you know, having those really great 16-year-old life conversations that are really deep in the middle of the night when you're, you know, doing concerts throughout Europe. And so there's just, there's just so many moments that I can think back to, you know, how the rhythm of the bus lulled us to sleep and we would curl up together and then we would wake up together and we'd be like, oh, we're bosom friends, just like Anne of Green Gables and her friend Diana. That was what they called each other, was bosom friends. And we just, we have the same, we love the same things and we have the same really silly sense of humor and we love animals and we love Michigan and all of the, the lakes and everything. The sad part is that Sarah and I live about 400 miles apart. Our hometowns are 400 miles apart and we're actually closer, me going to school in Ohio and her going to school near Detroit than we've ever been. And so we see each other a little bit more, but there's a lot of calling each other when we're driving home and saying like, oh, I might see you soon. And like, oh, we have to make plans so that I can drive up to the UP and see her or that she can come come down to mid-Michigan and see me or she can come down to Oberlin. And the coolest thing is that that even though we're really far apart and it takes a lot of driving or flying or, you know, paddling your kayak to get to to like bridge the distance between us it really it really never feels that far and we're those we're the type of friends that always pick up where we left off the last time (laughs) my mom says that I sent her a letter um when I was in Europe and I said mom I think I think this girl is going to be the maid of honor in my wedding and when mom met her, she was like, she's like, yeah, that's the kind of relationship that Anita and Sarah have. So, you know, the next time that you have a chance to ride a big tour bus all over Europe and play concerts and eat bread in the middle of the night, you could be doing that uh, with your very best friend. I love you, Sarah. Anita Peebles is a junior religion and environmental studies major from Michigan. She loves sunshine, kittens, and reading poetry. Our next story this hour is from Michael George Ellis. When you really think about it, airports are pretty strange places. I think I came to this realization the one time in my life that I missed a connecting flight. The reason why it happened and what I did afterwards is part of another story, one that I may tell at a later date. But for this particular story, the point that I wanted to bring up was the feeling of airports. Airports are specifically designed as places where you wait. There are distractions, of course, newsstands, bookstores, cocktail lounges, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the airport is one of those places where you wait so you can keep going on the rest of your journey. It's not like sitting in a car on a long drive. That's actually something I find a little bit comforting. You can feel the movement of the road under your seat, and you can see the world around you as it passes by. It's close, personal in a way. If I wanted to, I could pull the car over and get out and touch the trees or take a look around the city that I'm in. 
but in an airport, there's nothing really to see. The concourses share the same boxy design, the windows appropriately wide and large, and any attempt to explore beyond the windows is likely to land you in handcuffs. And that last bit is partly what makes the feeling of airports so unique. It's not just a place for waiting, it's a place for waiting spiked with a hint of anxiety. In recent times, airports have become a kind of backdrop for what could go terribly wrong. And it's unsettling. This was the thought that was occupying me most as I was heading down to Florida with my parents a few years ago. It wasn't a vacation, none of us were really excited. My grandfather, a widower of about a year and a half at the time, had fallen in his house and broken his hip, and it became quickly apparent that he could no longer live by himself. Having already brought him to a nursing home near us, my parents and I were going down to clean out the rest of his house so that we could put it up on the market. And since driving was a near two-hour slog with only a weekend to get there, get the job done and get back, I found myself thumbing through a magazine at a newsstand waiting for our 10 o'clock flight to begin boarding. I was nervous. I'm always nervous before flying. I find myself sitting in my tiny chair, trying to find ways not to think about crashing and how loud that engine seems and wondering if that's normal and searching the faces of the crew for signs of panic and worrying whether or not I should be worrying. And I do this for entire flights. I wait for something to happen. I keep waiting and nothing happens. And as they say, nothing is scarier. On this flight, I was seated next to my dad. I remember he looked tired. Like me, my dad is an early riser, but lately, with all the stuff happening with my grandfather, dad had turned from waking up early to just never sleeping at all. I could tell he wouldn't rest on the flight either. Like me, he'd been worrying but not about the flight. He'd be waiting for something in his own way. So I asked him about my grandfather. Papu, we called him. That's Greek for grandfather. How was Papu doing, I asked. Is he more himself now? After breaking his hip, Papu had gone through some pretty intense surgery. The drugs had left him in a bit of a stupor, and for a while he was full-blown senile. But the effects had been wearing off, my dad told me. He's back to talking about the ironworkers, dad said. Ironworkers and cranes. Does he really not talk about anything else? Well, dad started, you know, Papu's getting pretty old. And he's always liked to tell stories. So a lot of the time when I go visit, that's mostly what I do. I listen to him tell stories. I knew dad visited quite a bit. After Papu moved into the nearby nursing home, Dad would go to see him every day during his lunch break. They'd speak to each other in Greek. Unfortunately, he's been telling these stories for a long, long time, Dad said, chuckling. And I've heard pretty much all of them. But recently, he's also started talking about Greece. And very occasionally, I can get him to tell me about how he came to the United States. He's never really talked about it before. He never told me that story when I was growing up. So I asked my dad to tell me that story. And this is what he told me. John Georgellis, my grandfather, 
was born on an island off of an island floating in the Aegean Sea belonging to Greece. His family owned a goat farm, and he worked there for a lot of his young life. Six days a week he worked on the farm, and Sunday was spent at the church. Life continued for him like this until he was about 16 or 17. That's when World War II swept the globe, and even an island as small as his couldn't escape from it. The Germans came to occupy the island. Papu said that though the Germans weren't cruel, they did commandeer the nicest houses to set up their command centers. He also said that because he was a young man of appropriate age, he was in considerable danger. For occupied territories, young men like him were either sent to work camps or put on the front lines for the German army. Wanting to save him from such a fate, his family managed to get him sent to a refugee camp in Egypt by way of a cousin with connections. The camp wasn't much better than living on the island. It was cramped, the people were strange, and more and more Papu wanted to hear from his cousin about what they were going to do next. As the war continued, it became less and less safe to stay there. Finally, his cousin came back with a plan. A nearby dock was used by merchant marines to load and unload cargo. The cousin knew the next time the ship would be coming. When that ship shows up, he said, you be there, and you find a way aboard. Papa went to the dock at the designated time, and the ship was there like his cousin had said. Boxes and barrels were all over the place, but no one was around. He started looking at the ship, trying to see a way that he could climb up the side. But after a few minutes, he couldn't find anything, and he was getting anxious that someone might see him. Suddenly he remembered the cargo all around him. He grabbed the closest piece he could find. He tore it open. A barrel filled with olives. Carefully, he dragged the barrel to the edge of the dock, tipped it over, and dumped the contents into the water. From there, he stepped inside the barrel, squeezed himself down, and wedged the top back on. Then he waited. When he woke up, he was on the ship. He was so scared that he stayed in the barrel for a few more hours, but before long he couldn't take it and got out. He was worried that the merchant marines might not take to having a stowaway on board, so he resolved that if he was on the ship, he would earn his keep. My grandfather walked out in plain view on deck, found the first man he saw, and introduced himself. His gamble paid off. Though at first many of the merchant marines were annoyed, Papu's insistence on working around the ship and helping where he could won them over. And besides, there wasn't much they could do. They were at sea, and they weren't savages. After they finished the first circuit of their route, Papu stayed on the ship. It was safer there than in any of the countries grappled in war, he thought. For several years during the conflict, my grandfather worked along a convoy headed from Africa to Sri Lanka, over the Indian Ocean. During one trip, while Papu was playing cards with some friends below deck, he heard a tremendous explosion and felt the boat rock. He heard shouts up on deck. The game was quickly forgotten and he rushed into the sunlight. After a moment of disorientation, he saw it. Far away over the bow, a black plume of smoke curled from the sinking wreckage of the boat ahead of his in the convoy. A torpedo! Someone shouted. A torpedo hit them! I saw it! The specter of a dreaded fear in those waters, a Japanese U-boat, surfaced in Papu's imagination. Never was the war more real for him then. He thought for sure that they were next, 
that any second another silent, cylindrical explosive device would slam into his ship and sink him into death. He sat below and waited. He prayed and waited, swore and gasped and waited, and nothing happened. No other ship was attacked. They completed the route like always. After several routes, my grandfather's boat made a stop in New York City. Given shore leave, Papu got himself what money he could, found the nearest payphone, and managed to call another relative that he knew lived in the United States. It was an uncle, an iron worker that lived out in Indiana. You want to stay on a boat for the rest of your life? The uncle asked. You come out here, I'll get you a real job. So Papu jumped ship, and he never looked back. In a fascinating end to an even more fascinating story, this displaced Greek man, having just arrived in the U.S. speaking only Greek, managed to make his way from New York City to Indiana. And from there, he got a job as an iron worker. He met his wife, my grandmother, and married her. They would have a family, raise that family, and watch them grow into self-sufficient adults. My grandfather and grandmother would move to Florida. They would stay in their house for a few years, and when their neighborhood changed, they moved elsewhere, to the house where my parents and I were flying at that moment. It was the house where my grandmother stopped breathing. It was where my grandfather broke his hip. It was where I was waiting in a plane to go to. By the time my father finished the story, the flight was over. But afterwards, I continued to think more and more about that strange and absolutely lucky journey without which I would never exist. As we cleaned what was left of Papu's house, the weight of that journey became more and more stark. How long did he wait in that camp before his cousin came with a solution? How long did he wait in that barrel, praying that he would be carried up the plank rather than left on the dock? How long did he hold his breath after watching that boat sink below the waves, waiting for a torpedo to rip a hole in his ship? How long had he waited in this house, alone? How long had he lived surrounded by a lifetime's worth of possessions, nearly all of which passed from my hands into a blue iron dumpster in the driveway? How did this man, who could not read English well or understand the fast pace of movies or television shows, live each day waiting for something, anything, to happen, only to face nothing but the same white carpet and white walls that have always been around him. In the clearing of his house, I started to see my grandfather's life divided into periods of being in transit. In doing so, I started to see the patterns in my life as well. It made me think on that airport feeling, the sense of being between places where something could go very wrong if the circumstances aligned. In one sense, it's exciting because it's the start of something new, the beginning of a different place, but at the same time it carries the danger of uncertainty. We can't escape the moments of being in transit. We can't really expect to. But we should be mindful of where that uncertainty can lead us. It can be an overactive imagination. It can be a few sleepless nights. I can't say where it led my grandfather, but I can guess. I know that when we cleaned out the house, I found a pistol in the drawer of a table stand near the front door. It was loaded.
Michael George Ellis is an alum from Center College, class of 2010. A collector of stories, his thoughts are half Tolkien, half Lovecraft, all English major. He works in Cincinnati, Ohio to make textbooks cheaper for students everywhere. Our next story this hour, a story from my mother, Helen Chu Hirschberg. This is a story about transitions adult won't seem like it the, in the beginning. I've never considered myself a trained person, certainly not like my husband, who could likely recite to you the whole history of the Paris Metro or name every ghost station on the New York City subway system. My son was into trains when he was little, laying extensive yards of brio track originating from his bedroom, snaking into the hallway and into my bedroom. Every excursion to the Sacramento Train Museum elicited running back and forth in front of the model train, accompanied with shrieks of delight. Not I, though when I think about it, trains have been an integral part of my daily existence. From the age of 11, my father determined that I had to have a proper upbringing befitting a Chinese daughter. This involved going to Chinese school for several years, including summers. Never mind that we lived nowhere near Chinatown. My sisters and I were to take the subway every day after school to the Waqiu Chinese School on Mott Street, arriving back home after eight every night. Initially, my body rebelled, for I had inherited my mother's propensity for motion sickness and was sick on the trains for a miserable first week. My sister Susie, a future nurse, patted encouragement, but I can tell you it was quite miserable. However, it didn't take long for the trains to become my friend. When I became old enough for high school, I decided that the only one I wanted to go to was the High School of Music and Art, a two-and-a-half-hour daily commute I tested in. From that point on, including college and work, much of my life was on the subway. I ate, slept, read, wrote, studied, ruminated, and did homework on the trains. On weekends, they took me to museums, galleries, visits with friends, dinners, Fifth Avenue, Central Park, parties, just about everywhere. I thought no more of it than one was sleeping in your bed every night. It was just a way of life. So you can see a major part of my life has been spent on trains. By this time, I am sure you are wanting to know what in God's name this has to do with transitions. In fact, absolutely nothing, at least until senior year of college, that is. It was then that a young, zealous professor appeared to teach a class on psychology. Her name was Judy Sills. It was clear that she was quite serious and enthusiastic about the task at hand, which turned out to be much to her undoing. She soon found a near mutiny on her hands. No liberal arts college was this. This was the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art, for it was clearly emblazoned across the front of the foundation building. The future artists, architects, and engineers were having none of this overloading of psychology homework on them because that would be, well, simply overloading. In her defense, she was actually a good teacher and initiated some thoughtfulness on my part on the whole subject of Freudian thought. 
Later, she was to be a regular writer for the magazine Psychology Today. Subsequently, I read Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, in which trains are a symbol of transition. I thought no more about it. As I said before, trains just were of no consequence to me. My first connection was not to be my own dream, but that of a co-worker. Around the time I was planning to escape New York for California, I had told no one at work. One morning, one friend said she had had a dream about me the previous night. I was on a train. The connections after that were my own dreams, and they were years apart, also during transition times. The next was during my first pregnancy. Now, if you know me, you must know that I love food. Not that I gorge, but I think of all the tantalizing tastes of food. When you are pregnant, the doctor advises you to gain weight. Since I didn't want to end up fat, I was determined to gain only a certain amount, like 25 pounds and not 50. This meant a constant monitoring of food and calories. Food was always on my mind. I had a marvelous dream one night. I dreamed that I was about to get on the train. It looked something like the subway cars I had entered hundreds of times before. Only, this was no ordinary train. This train was filled with lots of sushi of the most delectable kind. It was sushi heaven. The next train dream, too, was striking. It was during my divorce. This time, I was actually seated on the train. As it was pulling away, I looked out the window. Much to my surprise, instead of the usual sights, there was a two-headed bull standing on the platform, I thought. One for me, one for my ex. I am mystified as to why these transitions should be represented by trains, other than that Freud had said so. A train was not my preferred mode of travel. I had, in fact, left New York by airplane, like most people. Traveling to and from the hospital was certainly by car. I did flee my marriage in a car as well. And there are so many other ways to travel. Julia Roberts left each of her impending marriages in the movie The Runaway Bride via horseback, white veil and gown billowing in the breeze. Did I dream in trains because Freud has suggested it to my subconscious? Is it possible he only thought in trains because he knew nothing of cars or airplanes? Does anyone else limit their dreams to trains? Or do they dream about sedan chairs, limousines, cruises, hot air balloons, jets, and the like? It would be interesting to know. My mother, Helen Chu Hirschberg, teaches English language development in Fremont, California. She is an artist and a first-generation Chinese-American. Our next story this hour is from Daniel Tam Claiborne. I won't be home for Christmas again. It occurred to me that receiving coal for Christmas in Taigu might not be the worst thing in the world. Coal powered everything there, and I figured that a stocking full could at least heat a moderately sized home for the majority of a day. By the looks of things, we all got coal in our stockings that year, coal dust in the air, coal energy in our pipes, coal stacked high in mounds where we lived, 
and even coal on the trains from workers who shoveled the black stuff into furnaces at stop points. Growing up with my family in Brooklyn, we didn't have many traditions. No tree past age 10, no church services, and no holiday ham. We didn't even put out milk and cookies for Santa. When I was younger, I used to window shop down Fifth Avenue with my mom, taking careful note of the elaborate displays in the storefront windows. In more recent years, the only real Christmas tradition I had was walking with my friend Sam to the gigantic tree on 48th Street from his apartment in Greenwich Village, all while swigging warm brandy eggnog from a thermos to keep from freezing on the four-mile trek. Christmases in years past saw me, most notably, playing guest at my cousin's birthday party, which fell on the 25th, as we helped to unpack and reconstruct their plastic Christmas tree and decorate it with tiers of gaudy gold and silver tinsel, frosted glass bulbs, and Disney-themed ornaments. My uncle's house practically shouted holiday festivity as the sound of Kenny G and Nat King Cole steadily pumped in from the TV speakers. The grown-ups spent the better part of the day in the kitchen, my uncle cooking, my mother quietly peeling vegetables, and my aunt making off-handed comments about my mom's dishwashing technique and how she needed to get a real job. Each time, I looked forward to the chance to spend time with my cousin Emma, whom I only got to see once or twice a year. Emma's family only lived a couple hours from us in Queens, but somehow it was always this logistical nightmare for our families to make time for each other. The yearly gathering was perhaps the closest thing to a reunion my family got, where the cousins and aunts I hadn't seen since the previous year's party all came out to celebrate Christmas and their prodigal niece. I was never sure what made me more uneasy, the fact that I was expected to make conversation with adults I hardly knew, or that those same adults were giving me presents I felt I hardly deserved. At these sorts of occasions there was always a musical interlude, where two of my second cousins, my cousin Emma, my sister and I, would each take turns playing our various instruments to the amusement of the crowd. It was a relatively unbiased way of assessing our audible worth, which would then be extended to our other qualities. I played the cello, my sister the violin, and my three cousins, all about my age, played the piano. Because of the size of my instrument, I always performed last, but by then there was hardly anyone left in the audience who had any interest whatsoever in whatever slapdash rendition of Handel or Mozart I could put together without sheet music. At the end of the night, when nearly all the guests had left to go home, my sister and I would beg my, my mother to stay overnight, no matter how much we knew she hated sleeping there, away from her own bed. Some years she would relent, but on others she held fast, and we would trudge through the snow to the nearest subway stop and ride the two hours back home. Each year we had that same feeling when we came back to our treeless, decorationless apartment, a feeling of not being good enough. As it turned out, my mom and my sister didn't make it to my cousin's house for Christmas, my second year in Taigu. It was only the second time in over a decade that they had missed the party. The day after Christmas that year was marked by a blizzard, blanketing the city with snow, and in typical fashion, city officials had little idea how to handle it. I, too, was breaking with tradition, balancing a yearning for a bygone childhood, and the curiosity and wonderment that came with entirely unsympathetic reimagining of Christmas in a foreign land. We were an unlikely bunch of foreigners to be holiday ambassadors, with at least two atheists, a couple of Jews, and only one dedicated Christian, we may not have all had the most traditional Christmas upbringing, but all of us, save for Tyra, had celebrated it in one way or another. In the days leading up to Christmas, Dylan, Jerry, and Grant, the three other male teachers, and I decided to make a trip to Beijing for a sort of boys' weekend out. On the ramshackle 12-hour night train from Taiga, we were fortunate to get a private four-bunk soft-sleeper cabin, 
meaning that we would hold conversation in relative comfort, perch on the second story of adjacent bunk beds, and take swigs of beer from giant glass bottles. We even had lights out our, at our own discretion. Going to Beijing was like reaching the par promised land in many ways. Familiar food, people who spoke English, and a constant stream of events and things to do. Almost without fail, though, on every overnight train ride back to Taigu, a familiar feeling would creep in. As the swell of skyscrapers and high-rises fell away, it was like going back home to Brooklyn after Christmas with my cousins, the feeling that my life was in some way worse than all that I had experienced, that it wasn't good enough. China, as a secular country, doesn't celebrate Christmas, at least not in the way your average Christian family did in America, complete with midnight mass on Christmas Eve and the life-size Jesus-in-the-manger nativity displays arranged alongside blow-up reindeer as front lawn decorations. What China does do to celebrate Christmas is shop, though even that is different than in America. KFC capitalized on that well, with targeted advertisements that paired a family's consumption of a bucket of fried chicken with sledding and making snowmen on a blustery winter's day, all traditions that were not native to China. As night fell on my first day in Beijing, the four of us found ourselves at a divey Japanese restaurant. I went into writing my journal that in that moment, I was at the height of cultural confusion, Everything about the situation seemed off. For one thing, Jingle Bells was blaring on loop from the overhead speakers, literally the first Christmas song I had heard all year, and the interior was decked out in wreaths, ornaments, bows, and other decorations, hanging from below the oversized menus and scattered around the checkout counters. Even the women behind the cash registers were wearing Santa hats to match their red and white aprons. I couldn't help feeling like an outlier, a traitor to my family to whom I hadn't spoken in weeks, or more generally to the country that I had, if not for good, then at least for the time being, left behind. In the same way that I wanted to be a good cultural ambassador of America to China, I also wanted to be a representative embodiment of America to my future family. How would I reconcile the part of me that waited in a lonely apartment in rural China on Christmas Eve, knowing full well that there wouldn't be anything to greet me in the morning, no iconic Christmas specials, no gathering of presents around a tree, no baking chestnuts in the oven, no twinkle of Santa's sleigh passing across the night sky. As the entrees were being served, I asked Darren and Jerry, isn't there something weird about those rare instances in life when all of your expectations are fulfilled, but yet you still don't feel satisfied? It was the first time any of us had had sushi in close to a year, and we were devouring delicate rolls like newly released inmates. They both nodded, assuring me that the feeling was natural. Compared to Beijing, Christmas in Taigu wasn't nearly as elaborate an affair. There were few reminders that it was even a holiday at all, save for the tiny windowsill effigies of Santa Claus and the handful of decorated fake trees at restaurant entrances that worked to drum up business. It was said that most of the recycled PVC plastic that went into making fake trees came from China, so it should have been no surprise that they were everywhere. Many Chinese took Christmas to be the equivalent of Chinese New Year on the mainland, a traditional and reverent holiday spent doing things together with family. With the emphasis on togetherness, everyone I talked to was shocked when I revealed that I wouldn't be going home for the holidays. When I said it was about money, most scoffed, unable to see the connection with cost when there was an innate obligation to one's family. Won't your parents miss you? Students asked me, in between mouthfuls of braised pork and garlic shoots at our end-of-year banquets. Probably, I said, noncommittally, just before we toasted to the end of the first semester and the new year to come. Holding true to our tradition from the previous year, we decided to cook a big meal together and eat it in the spacious, friendly comfort of Jerry's living room. 
A couple of our students, guessing our whereabouts, bombarded us with apples, some wrapped in colorful foil, others in individual boxes, some dipped in various candied lacquers, and still more engraved and carved with designs. For dinner on Christmas Eve, we decided to cook Mexican food, since Jerry and Grant had bought taco seasoning on a recent trip to Shanghai. Cooking dinner came to me nearly as much fun and revelry as the eating itself. Each of us was responsible for different parts of the meal. Grant made the salsa, Jerry seasoned the meat, Dylan made tortillas, Tyra and Raina baked cookies from scratch, and I prepared the vegetables and rice. We ate and drank merrily, all to a playlist filled with equal parts Wham, The Ventures, and Mariah Carey. I was reminded of the swine flu crisis in my first year, and how it made us stronger and more united as a group. We had all drawn secret Santa recipients. Some people had enough foresight to buy their gifts during our trip to Beijing, but I led a second group on a trek out to the Walmart in Taiyuan for those of us who hadn't. Though our families all had different traditions on when exactly to open gifts, we decided that Christmas Eve was as good a time as any, so after dinner and clean-up, we divvied out our presents and relished the slow afterglow of the holiday spirit. After that came the tradition to end all traditions, watching a Charlie Brown Christmas around Jerry's oversized computer monitor. I imagined myself as Charlie Brown, the slightly pathetic but good-intentioned protagonist who seemed to get blamed more for society's failures than for its triumphs, but who took it upon himself to care for and support the group just the same. After dinner, we decided to open up the Sky Lantern package that one of my students had given me as a Christmas gift and instructed that it would be the most fortuitous to fly on Christmas Eve. It was a remarkably simple contraption, basically a huge sheet of paper fashioned around a metal frame that sat atop a square-sized piece of wax. The idea was that you wrote your wishes on the paper, lit the wax, and once the balloon was full of air, sent it up into the sky. Though admittedly the lantern was an, an environmental nightmare, it was impossible to know where the lantern would land or if it would potentially set fire to anything. It was also an extremely romantic notion, a group of friends jotting down their hopes for the new year and sending them off into the cool night air. At about 1 a.m., we walked to a small clearing bereft of trees and summed up our sky lantern, taken by the wind past the tops of houses and eventually out of sight. We woke up on Christmas morning not to a flurry of snow and residual holiday cheer, but to the harsh, dry coldness of Taigu. It was as biting cold as any day we had seen in Taigu that year, the kind of cold that made your hands hurt to leave them uncovered. I was coughing and my nose was running when I left my house to get lunch. I had spent the better part of the week getting over a cold, and the arid chill only compounded the misery I felt as I walked the shaky cobblestone steps out past my front door to the lopsided dirt road of North Yard. If I hadn't known any better, it could have been just another day in Taigu. SUVs and taxis rumbled across the narrow path, honking at the frigid pedestrians clustered on either side. I went to eat baozi for lunch, tender, round buns stuffed with meat and scallions at our usual place, across from the hair salon and three meters to the left of the intersection. Just as I was leaving, something caught my eye. On the floor, slightly obscured by lingering traces of dirt, I found an ornament a modest red ribbon adorned with the stylized text, Merry Christmas, still in its original packaging. I dusted it off and cradled it in the crook of my elbow back home. I had no tree on which to hang it, so I hooked it to my front door, as if somehow atoning for the neglected Christmases of my youth. Daniel Tam Claiborne is a graduate of Oberlin College and served as a Shanxi Fellow in Taigu, China from 2009 to 2011. 
I Won't Be Home for Christmas Again, is one of 22 short stories featured in his debut novel, What Never Leaves, published in 2012 by Wilder Voice Press. He is currently pursuing a master's degree in international relations at Yale University and can be reached at dtamclayborn at gmail.com, d-t-a-m-c-l-a-i-b-o-r-n-e at gmail.com. Our final story this hour, straight from the New York subway, by Alyssa Zellinger. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. Stories of riding the subway at night and from the end of the line. Scope out the length of the platform. If there's another woman on the platform, stand near her, but not too near her. Get on the same car as her, maybe by the second door. Maybe you will be safer if you're not the only woman in a car. Be drunk at 2 a.m. with friends on a Friday. The car is full, but not crowded. A girl is holding onto the bar, wearing a low-backed shirt. You think about licking her shoulder blades. At night, on 125th and Broadway, 1 a.m., prepare your pink Swiss army knife in your pocket. The corkscrew is safe to clutch, but still threatening. Know that the man on the platform is probably tired and preoccupied with problems of his own. He doesn't care that you're there. He wants to go home. Feel the rounds of the corkscrew in your pocket. It is after midnight and you're half asleep on the plastic seats next to your friend. You think about kissing her. You spend the journey down the line in the car with the crazy man who threatens anyone who engages him in conversation. He is no danger. There is always a passenger who can't stop talking to him and thinks otherwise. You meet other sets of eyes. You drink ginger ale on the way to a job interview. Check your lipstick. The sun is warm through the car windows until you go underground. It is dark. You look out the window. A big man tells you what stop it is, then berates you for not thanking him. He seems drunk. He's on the train the whole way home. Even off the subway and down the stairs, he's going the same way as you. Why does he have to be going the same way as you? You lag behind him the entire way home to your apartment building, across the bridge and to the intersection, afraid he'll see you and recognize you outside the confines of the car. You reach the steps of your building and go inside. Alyssa Zellinger graduated from Oberlin College in 2010. She currently lives in Delaware. That's it for this week's episode of The Second Page. I don't have time to do the full credits this week, but visit our website, makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage to listen to this episode again or to submit a story for next week. Next week's theme is Missed Connections. Once again, the website is makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. Thank you for listening. I'm Harris Laparoff. I'll be back next week with stories of missed connections.